about last week, that there was a gardener and there was a vineyard and then there was branches that came from the, the vineyard and the vine. And so Jesus says that we are the branches and he's the vine and we must be connected to him to find life in him. And, and as he continues into the second half of John 15, it's as if he brings clarity to the environment of the vineyard. And that is the world that we live in. And so we're going to spend some time talking about the world. Which leads to the first point, which is this. The world is our residence, but it is not our home. John 15, starting in verse 18, I'll read a few verses to us. It says this. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So in these few verses here, as we uh, begin our time, this word world is used six times. In 18 and 19 specifically, six times this word world is used. The Greek here is cosmos. It has three different ways to, uh, when we think about the word cosmos throughout the scripture, there's three ways you can uh, approach it. The first is a place. The cosmos is a place. It is a, a theater displaying God's glory and his creative beauty. And you travel and go to different places, go to North Georgia, go to different places, you find the creative beauty of God on display before your eyes. So this refers to a place, a, a place that we live in. Romans 1 talks about his eternal power and his divine attributes being seen through this place. And so the world is a, is a place. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's a place. More often in the New Testament, the, the idea of world is, a, is about people. The world is made up of people, image bearers. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world. It's not necessarily focusing on him loving rocks or loving trees. It's talking about people. He so loved the people of the world. It's about people. For God so loved the world. It's referring to a positive object of love that he has displayed to ultimately in the cross. And then the third feature, so you have a place, you have people, but the, the third uses of, of this word world is referring to the system of this world, the values within the world, the kingdom of this world. And this is the part I want to spend some time talking about. Paul says that, makes it clear that our fight isn't against the people or the place. We don't fight against flesh and blood, he says principalities and powers, these systems that have been set up. So let's hone in on this third feature of, of, of the world and, and the system therein. John Mark Comer defines this aspect of the world as follows. He says it's a system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God, and the redefinition of good and evil. So there's this system that's baked into our world. Kind of, can, if, you, if you reduce it down to two things, it's a rebellion against God, and it's a redefinition 
of good and evil. That is the baseline system of this world. See, this world is in rebellion against its maker. Rebellion is birthed from these twin sins he talks about. Living apart from God. It's the very core of what secularism is. A rejection of any other authority, a rejection against God ultimately. And then second, a redefinition of good and evil. To be true to yourself, that is now the absolute truth. And so Jesus talks about the world in all kinds of ways. He obviously just talked about it here. He talks about it in Luke chapter 9, verse 25, when he says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? He says, in other words, don't fall into the spell of the world. Don't fall into the illusion of the system that we find ourselves in. And again, in John 15, what we just read is that there's, um, the world is not just a, a temptation, but it's a threat to our soul. And so again, the world is a place. The world is uh, filled with people, but it's also uh, systems that have been created to pull us away from God. The world is a hostile place toward Jesus and his people, Jesus Tells us. This is what happens when Adam and Eve's sin goes viral and it affects societies. We go back to the beginning, the story in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which is so profound for how we see the world. God created everything good and beautiful and brilliant. With creativity, he created the world and he created it good. And then he created man and woman in his image. He created them and shortly after those ones who he gave dominion over the world rebelled against their maker. And in that moment, sin was introduced. The world was now fractured and is now fractured to this day. And when society uh, experiences the effects of sin, the system becomes broken within that society. We see it today. We see in secularism, there's this privacy privatization of, of your faith. Don't bring God into the public sector. Keep him private at all costs. So what is Jesus doing here as he speaks about the world six times in this text? He's inviting us to see a distinct life in his kingdom with him as our rabbi. He's teaching us how to live life in this world. See, in a Western culture, which we find ourselves in, amidst moral decay, and the removal of any kind of truth or God, where there's no longer bearings for God, where the old, uh, the old absolutes are now dying and the new absolute is, is to be true to yourself at all cost. We find that we've lost our senses and we don't have direction and, and Jesus is inviting us to see that there's a difference between living for him and his kingdom and living for the world around us. It's interesting there's an there's individual named Yuval Noah Harari, and, it, and they are the leading atheist of our time. And they kind of summarize the, the water we're in by saying this. In earlier times, it was God who could define goodness, righteousness, and beauty. Today, those answers lie within us. Our feelings give meaning to our private lives, but also to our social and political processes. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The customer is always right. The voter knows best. If it feels good, do it and think for yourself. These are some of the main humanist credos. So we see that's where we are. That's the essence of the system of the world that we find 
ourselves in. And Jesus says that the world is going to turn against you as it hates me. It's going to hate you. If you follow me and you submit to me as your king, the world will buck against you. And here we are in 2024. And man, it's more true than ever, right? We feel this tension of if I'm going to submit to an authority above myself, who's going to guide my life and be the sail to my life, I'm going to be canceled. That's the, the culture and the climate that we find ourselves in. And Jesus in the first century said, don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised when the system of this world bucks against you. You know, it's interesting, the, the gospel writer John, who was the um, youngest of the disciples, um, found himself writing the Gospel of John, and he wrote a couple other uh, letters in the New Testament. He wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote Revelation. And in 1st John, he speaks pretty explicitly about this world, this framework of this system that I'm talking about. And he takes the emphasis of Jesus that, that we just read, and, and he summarizes the world in three ways, and I want to consider them with you in 1st John chapter 2, verse 16. Is it going to be on the screen? There it is. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Again, he's separating the two realities. We have the kingdom of this world, and we have the kingdom of God. And so in the kingdom of this world, we have these three things that make up the system of this world. The first is the lust of the flesh. Second is the lust of the eyes. And the third is the pride of life. So what does that mean? The lust of flesh, it, it includes sexual temptation, for sure. It includes uh, using someone as an object to gain something on your own. It includes also instant gratification or control or dominion or gluttony. The lust of the eye, the crosshairs that John has is gluttony here. The lust of the eye, envy, jealousy discontentments, restlessness. This is the pride of life, that third piece within the system. The human proclivity toward going our own way, rebelling against any kind of authority that's not us, thinking that we know better than ourselves, though we can't even balance our checkbook. You know, we find ourselves unaware of how to do very basic things in life, yet we think that we know what's best. It's very ironic. Who, who are we to say we know what's best, best in life? Yet the pride of life is the an anthem of humanity right now. So he says these three things make up the system of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. And if you go a step further, I'm just drilling into this, this idea of the system of this world. You go a step further in Matthew chapter 4, we find that in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he has this interaction with, with the devil. If you recall, he's been fasting for 40 days and the, the devil shows up to him and he tempts him in a couple different ways. And those ways can be summarized in the three ways that John talks about just now. It's uh, the, the devil encourages Jesus to turn the, the stone into bread in, in a way that's a lust of the flesh. He, he tells him to, he tempts him to bow down to the devil and receive the kingdom of this world. That's the lust of the eyes. He says, throw yourself off the high point of the temple. It's the pride of life. You see this echoed in 
the very beginning, what we just talked about a minute ago in Genesis 3, 6, where it says, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. So we find that this pull, there's this pull in the systems of this world. There's this pull to pull us away from Jesus toward the kingdom of this world and away from the kingdom of Jesus. We've felt this before. If you've gone to the beach, we went to a family reunion, my wife's side of the family, uh, this last year at Panama City. And it was around that time where there's like red flags up, right? When you go to the beach and there's certain colored flags and, and there comes a point where there's like a double red flag where you need to stay away from the water unless you want to get pulled out. And at that time, there was a, a, a riptide that was taking place and it would pull you, it wouldn't suck you down, but it would pull you out. And if you fought against it, you could find yourself faced with death at times. Um, some people died in those rip currents. But in the same way, the momentum of the water of this world is pulling us out. And if we're not aware of what it's doing, we can find our hearts sucked in. And so Jesus is inviting us to know the world is hostile to you. The world is, is going to cause you to be pulled away and you must choose wisdom and you must live from a place of hope. So Jesus is inviting us to a kind of resistance that isn't fear-based. You can see how people can go down that path, but it's hope-based, hope-filled. See, our dilemma is that we struggle to resist without fear being a dominant emotion. When we, when we learn about the things of this world, our, our natural response is to kind of helicopter and, and protect and kind of create these little subcultures. And sometimes that's not very helpful. We end up creating these like knockoffs. We take what the world's down and we just kind of uncreatively create knockoffs from what the world's doing. And it ends up becoming a little bit weird. But Jesus is inviting us to resist with hope, a hope that drives us to engage the world not be scared of it. See, fear causes you to run from the world, and hope causes you to engage the world. If, you, if you're motivated by, by fear, it's going to cause you to create subcultures that keep you separate from the world. But, but Jesus said to not, be, uh, to, to not be of the world, but to be engaged in the world. And so we have to live in this posture of hope that motivates us. So the world is our residence but it is not our home. And this is why there's hope. In John 14 and John 16, the bookend of this section that we're in, he says the ruler of this world is coming in John 14. But then he says at the very end of John 16, we'll get to it next, year, next week, take heart, not next year. We'll be in another place next year. Uh, he says take heart. That's filled with hope. Take heart, why? Because I've overcome the world. He says the ruler of the world is coming. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So as you walk through life, Jesus is inviting us to anchor our hearts in the one who's overcome. To use the things of this world and to point them to why we need someone to rescue us. To not be so afraid of everything within this world, but to use the things of this world to, to lean into being on mission and to lean into um, Seeing the truth and the light and the hope of Jesus. See, your home, your true north, is a world where Jesus is king. We're invited over and over again to find our true north and Jesus being our king. See, when Jesus 
offer goes, see, Jesus' offer goes against the grain of our human condition and, and the kingdom of this world. And we're invited to take heart. We're invited to allow Jesus to be king. We're invited to let go of the illusion of control. We're invited to let go of the, the rulership that we feel like we need to have to control our life. And we're invited to trust Jesus with our lives. He says, take heart, I've overcome the world. And so the first aspect that we see within this text is that we're challenged to know that there's a world and there's a system within it that's pulling us away and he's inviting us to know that there's hope and to cling to hope as we live in this life. And the second thing we see in this text is, is this. It is to our advantage that the Spirit was given. Let's read uh, John 15, 26 and following. It says, But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. He goes on in verse 5, and he says, But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So see in this, in this text... Even in verse 1 where it says, I've said all these things to you uh, to keep you from falling away. And they, uh, they will put you out of the synagogues and if they, they find their hearts filled with grief. So in the middle of the section around the Holy Spirit, their, their hearts are filled with grief because he's telling them that he's about to leave. And Jesus says, don't, don't be overwhelmed by the fact that I'm leaving because I'm going to send you another one, one just like me who's going to fill the void in my absence. I appreciate Jesus' awareness of the hardships of life. I, I so appreciate that he's not aloof to the pain of life. And here, he leans into their grief and he reminds them that the Spirit will come. See, to a Jew, this was significant. The Spirit was characterized as the, the author of the kingdom to come throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, we, we find these promises of the Spirit coming. In Ezekiel 36, 26, it says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes. And then in Joel 2, another prophet, he says, It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. He says, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So this is a promise from the Old Testament that when the Spirit came, it would be a, a, an, a beginning of a new era, a dawning of a new day. And so the arrival of the Spirit upon the people of God was significant. As we walk through this world, we find that we have uh, we're not orphans, that we have the Spirit to walk with us. Consider how Jesus describes the Spirit in this, in this section in John 14, 15, and 16. Nick mentioned some of this several weeks ago, but 
uh, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as another helper, one just like Jesus. The Holy Spirit is just like Jesus. He calls him the Spirit of truth. He says he will teach us all things. He says it will proceed from the Father and the Son and disclose Jesus to us. He says it's to our advantage that he will come. And he says he will convict that same word, the world. He will expose, is another translation, he will expose the world of sin, the hollowness of our rebellion. He will expose the world of righteousness, our, our, the chasm that we have between God. And he will expose the world of judgment. That the ruler and his system will be dealt with. So the spirit is at work. He's been given to us, to walk with us, to abide within us. And it's good that Jesus left so that we would have the Spirit. It is to our advantage that the Spirit was given. So Jesus laces this section with a reminder that he, though he's leaving, he will give us the Spirit. And here's the tension. We live in a world, again, the system, that is hyper-independent, the world that we live in, the water that we swim in, is a world, it's a strange new world, as Carl Truman called it, where we are filled with what he calls expressive individualism. He defines it like this. Expressive individualism holds that each person has a unique core feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if individuality is to be realized. So the world that we live in is filled with this, this invitation for individualism and yet, we don't see progress and we don't see freedom coming from that individualism that we're offered. It's leading to anxiety and fear. On the contrary, our human nature is designed to be dependent. It's designed to be dependent upon God. And he's inviting his followers in this section to go back to our original design and being Tethered to God through his spirit, a posture of reliance upon God. And so, friends, we live in a world that's trying to pull us away from Jesus, and we're called to lean into it with hope, and we're given the Holy Spirit to carry us. And so the question is how? How do we engage the Spirit? The way we experience the life of the Spirit is through his practices, there's no other way around it. If you want to walk in the Spirit, if you want to abide in the vine, the way we do it is through the ancient practices of prayer, the ancient practices of confession, the ancient practices of Scripture and community and life together. Those things the Spirit responds to and moves in our midst. So as we close... The world is our residence, but it's not our home. The Spirit is our advantage. And so I have to ask, where are we feeling the pool of this world? You know, it's interesting, if I sat with you and the person next to you, likely you're feeling a pool that's different than the next person. And so for you, what is that thing that's trying to draw you away from the kingdom of Jesus and towards the kingdom of this world? Where is the world maybe drawing you, that system? Is it the lust of the flesh? Is it the lust of the eyes? Is it the pride of life? Is the Spirit convicting or exposing or reminding you to turn your heart back, to not be drawn like that riptide 
away. We so often feel this draw to protect ourselves and to look out for ourselves. And the invitation of the gospel is that we have a king who's come to rescue us and he's looking out for us and so you don't have to look out for yourself. So we're invited into this place of recognizing that the world is pulling us away and we want to have hope and lean into it. We're invited to remember that the spirit is at work in our midst and he's exposing and revealing and we're invited to confess and repent and turn our hearts back to him. The helpers come, my friends. He's come to give us life and hope and to give us courage as we engage this world. I love where this text ends next week, that um, let, it, let your hearts be troubled. Remember that I've overcome the world. And so we cling to that story, we cling to that message this morning. So even as we close, I would just invite you, if there's areas of your heart and your life, your lifestyle that's kind of pulling you into this world, I just want to remind you that there's an invitation of Jesus to be pulled back to Jesus afresh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've overcome the world. Thank you that you've sent your son to do so. Thank you that you've sent us your spirit. And Lord, we ask um, this morning that you would lead us not into temptation. You deliver us from the evil one. Father, we take serious that the world and the systems within and the devil behind it would love to allure and numb our hearts. And we want to cling to those words that Jesus, you gave to us in the Lord's Prayer to lead us not into temptation. So Lord, where we find our hearts tempted in a variety of ways with work or relationships or things that are against your kingdom that would lead us to death and not life, Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts you would draw our hearts afresh back to you. We thank you that your mercy is so wonderful that you expose areas of our hearts when we don't deserve it to draw our hearts back to you. And so I pray even in this time of communion that you would help us to confess and help us to turn our hearts back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.